Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to All the Wiser. I'm Kimmy Culp. All the Wiser is a one-for-one podcast. For every inspiring interview you hear, we donate $2,000 to charities around the world. I believe in the power of storytelling to inspire us all to think differently about the world around us. So, I have combed the country for some of the most jaw-dropping stories you have ever heard. People who have been to the brink and back, stories of survival against all odds, and whose lives have been changed in unthinkable ways. Today's interview is with Kristen Gray. In 2015, Gordon and Kristen Gray were living a great life in Los Angeles. Gordon was a successful producer of beloved films like Miracle and McFarlane, and Kristen a stay-at-home mom to two happy and healthy little girls. In March of that year, their lives would be forever changed. The couple was told their four-year-old daughter, Charlotte, had Batten disease. It was a disease which would leave her blind, immobile, cognitively impaired, and gone by the time she was 6 to 12 years old. Doctors handed them a pamphlet, told them to go home, prepare their house for wheelchairs, and kiss their daughter every day. Two weeks passed before receiving a call that their youngest daughter, Gwyneth, had the same diagnosis. The chances that two carriers of this genetic disease would meet, fall in love, and start a family are more than one in one million. Well, in spite of the doctor's order, this family was never willing to take no for an answer. Kristen and Gordon will truly stop at nothing to fight for treatment, protect their girls, and create moments of joy in their family. Kristen is a warrior. She is fueled by the love of her children, and it is a true privilege to know her and help in sharing her story. Here's today's interview with the unstoppable Kristen Gray. Kristen Gray, welcome to All the Wiser. Thank you for being here on this chilly Los Angeles day. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Happy that it's chilly, too. So, Kristen, set up where you are in your life in 2015. 2015, I am married. I have two children. I had just finished a career as a portfolio manager in the wine and spirits industry and um, had quit the job to be, you know, home with my kids and to be able to spend more time with them. Um, Charlotte was four, had just turned four, and and Gwyneth was um, two and a half. And you said you always knew you wanted to be a mom. Always. Yeah. That was my A number one. And what was your vision of that? I mean, I think just immersing myself in everything that involves being a mom, motherhood, um, from, you know, raising your children to be strong, confident, independent, in my case, women, um, and girls having lots of fun, um, doing all the, you know, the different activities with them and, and kind of uncovering what they love to do. So life is good, really good, right? Yeah. So you're a new yeah. mom, happily married and starting your family. And you start to notice some 
changes in your oldest daughter, Charlotte. Mm-hmm. What changes were you starting to notice? Yeah, um, we had enrolled Charlotte in a program um, two days a week, and she was loving it. She was super social. She loved her teachers. She looked forward to going, you know, each week. And what my husband and I noticed was that she was pretty verbal. In contrast to her her peers, she was social, she was verbal, she was engaged, she was, you know, doing things well. So I think as parents, we always kind of hope for that. And at the end of the year, I noticed that all of her classmates had really kind of caught up or surpassed her in skill, whether it be with fine motor tasks or following directions, you know, speech, et cetera. And so um, and shortly thereafter, like within, you know, a few weeks, she started to get stuck on her words which I thought was strange. She also was stuffing her mouth with food, like her sandwiches and stuff. She wouldn't wait until she had finished a bite. She would kind of try to shove the whole sandwich in her mouth. Um, But kind of all of these things combined really kind of started to trigger that inner mom gut feeling that something maybe wasn't right. You know, from there, we ended up scheduling an appointment with a neurologist. And as you're observing all of this, you start to see series of doctors walk me through that phase and the feedback you're getting and sort of how your um, intuition kicks in at this point. So upon a referral from a classmate's um, mother, we went and called a a speech pathologist to come in and, and evaluate Charlotte. And they said she isn't therapy ready, which I thought was strange. Like, what does therapy ready mean? Like, if you need therapy, whether it be speech or any other that's that's kind of the next step, right? Yeah. So they said we'd recommend occupational therapy first to get her therapy ready and then bring her in for speech. Um, so we were doing that once a week, continuing you know, our regular lives and um, really just waiting for that neurology appointment. What happens when you see the neurologist? So they just do kind of a, a brief overview test um, just to kind of see where they are in their language, where they are in fine motor, where they are in, in their social skills. Um, we met with her and then she immediately recommended doing some, you know, additional testing. And of course, she was kind of leaning towards diagnosing her with ASD, autistic spectrum disorder, or but really it felt like from the very beginning, that's kind of what she was thinking, which my husband and I didn't believe that that was the issue. You described an aha moment at Christmas. Share with us that moment. So we, I always host Christmas with my family, you know, 20 people plus. It's something that I love and, and have continued to do. And we had finished dinner and we were starting to open presents with the kids. And Charlotte, as she was kind of moving around the living room, had tripped over a, a package. And when she went to brace herself with her hands, her arms started tremoring, which I thought was strange. And so I remember going to my cousin, like I, I kind of kept it to myself for a minute, but then I needed that validation that either maybe I'm crazy and I saw this and it's nothing. And so I said to my cousin, I just saw Charlotte fall and her arm tremored. Did you see that? And she said, no, but I'm sure it's nothing. So I kind of, you know, took a big gulp and then, you know, dug it down deep. <laughs> and then the next morning I woke up and I started talking to Gordon about it again. And and then we just had really a, a big talk about 
you know, what to look for moving forward. And so I was watching her like a hawk, just with every movement, every, you know, time she was speaking, every game that she was playing, how she was engaging with us and with her sister and with her peers. And I know you're at this point calling the neurologist, sharing that this is happening and doctors are still saying, you know, it's an autism seizure. They're sticking with this diagnosis. She basically said, look, you know, she's on the spectrum and children that have autism also have the propensity for seizures. And that sounds like it was a seizure. And so and what is your intuition telling you at this that point? That's not the issue, that it must be something much bigger. You observe this again and videotape it, correct? You videotape yeah. one of her seizures. Yeah. So in so in January, we were just at the beach having fun with friends and that same kind of tremor I witnessed six times in one day. And that really freaked me out. And so again, called the neurologist, she kind of poo-pooed it. And I said, forget it, I'm just going to videotape it. You know, if you're not going to, if we're not going to schedule an appointment, I'm just going to videotape it and you can tell me what you think. And so I did videotape it as she was climbing into the car and she immediately scheduled the EEG. So you have this tipping point. Mm -hmm. I know the doctors called you and said, we want to see you in person. Mm -hmm. Walk me through the day of receiving her ultimate diagnosis. So we knew when we got the call. So she had had her EEG. It was actually four or five years now to this week. Um, they started her on a medication, seizure medication called Keppra. And her EEG wasn't horrible. It just was abnormal. And And I remember kind of going and not knowing we were planning to put Charlotte in ski school prior to the EEG and prior to all of this stuff being um, uncovered. And we still did. We still put her in ski school. We just, you know, asked them to, te you know, take care of her and really look out for any movements or things out of the ordinary. Um, and we knew coming back upon our return that she was going to have the MRI, which would ultimately give her a potential diagnosis. So there was just a lot of anticipation, a lot of anxiety, a lot of fear and, you know, fear of the unknown, really. So we had, you know, a good trip and glad we did it because Charlotte loved to ski. She loved to be outside in the snow. And, um, you know, we wanted to continue those experiences no matter what. So we came back and we immediately had the MRI and the neurologist called Gordon and I and said, hey, I, you know, I, I've received the MRI results and I don't want to scare you, um, but I'm going to give you a potential diagnosis, but don't look it up. We said, well, what is it? She said, we think it might be a leukodystrophy. So of course, what do we do? We immediately go and look up what leukodystrophy is. And it's a neurodegenerative brain disease that is found in, in children. Really a lot of the same characteristics and symptoms of our ultimate diagnosis. So there was just a lot of fear um, that set, set in at that time. So my husband, both my daughters had to get blood drawn for a test. So um, we went in and we met with the um, geneticist and he said it's going to it could take up to three months to get your results back. And we said, well, knowing what we know about her MRI and what the potential diagnosis could be, we don't really have three months like we need to move. And we said, well, what is the soonest we could get um, the results back? And he said, I could maybe get them in three weeks. Um, and I remember being in the room with him and my husband who do I need to talk to? Like, who who runs this? And he said, do you have a number of anyone that I can call? And the geneticist um, said, I'll be right back and walks out, out of the room. And the resident hands my husband a number to call, which was 
awesome and moving and um, so many things for us. Um, And so we literally for the next three weeks stalked this geneticist to make sure that he was on it to make sure things were moving forward so that we could get a diagnosis um, for Charlotte. And I remember being on um, the campus of UCLA, which is challenging because I'm a USC grad. And I had Gwyneth in my ergo um, trying to navigate that campus and find out where his lab was. And I think I went to three separate buildings, knocked on like 30 doors, and finally he opened his door. And I was standing there with Gwen. I think I had like, you know, sweat and tears kind of combined and said, you really need to make this happen. You know, you gave us your word. Is it is it moving forward? And he did. He said it's going to happen. And three weeks later, we got the call from him and he said, I need you you and your husband to come in. So we really had no information going in there. And I remember the drive seemed really long and, um, you know, we were both really nervous and scared. And we were escorted into this room that had no windows and they shut the door and he said, "Um, your daughter Charlotte has Batten disease CLN6. Um, It's a neurodegenerative brain disease. It's rare. It's fatal, and there is no cure. Um, We know of one other child that has this diagnosis in India, and he slapped down a pamphlet of that gave us more information about the disease and the child and the symptoms, um, and said, "Prepare your home for wheelchairs, and you know, kiss your daughter every day." And then he said, "Oh, and by the way, your younger daughter has a twenty-five percent chance of having the same diagnosis." So. Gordon and I kind of walked out of there stunned, obviously. We were angry at the way that it was presented. We were angry, you know, that he was basically asking us to give up on um, our daughter. Um, and so I remember going downstairs and we we walked outside the building. We immediately called um, a woman by the name of Joanne Kurtzberg at Duke University, who we had already been talking to about cord blood transplants. So you get this diagnosis. You walk out of the building, make this phone call. <clears throat> What is the ride home like? Awful. Silent. um, Sad. Over the course of the next two weeks, we talked to probably 20 different scientists who all all but one recommended against it, a cord blood transplant, because A, there was no proof of concept yet for this particular indication being Batten disease. And two, it's very risky because you're completely suppressing the immune system. You know, you're stripping it down to nothing. Um, and there are a lot of complications that can come from a treatment like this. So we really had to kind of take a step back and, and reevaluate and say, while we want something Im- immediate, this probably isn't the right move at this given you know point. So we really need to be discerning about our next steps. And meanwhile, you're waiting on the diagnosis for your daughter, Gwen. Mm-hmm. Explain that process and what that time period was like. I mean, awful, just like it was waiting for Charlotte. You know, we... Did you have an intuition one I think way or the other? I didn't. I was I was cautiously optimistic. She does not have this. I mean, I remember my stepmom telling me, I will. I bet my life on it. She does not have this. And I'm sure a lot of that just comes from that motherly support where she wanted to be supportive and really be encouraging that, you know... We were going to have one, you know, shining light in this very dark time, but it was it was excruciating. But we were already kind of focused on 
what was happening with Charlotte. So we kind of just put that to bed at the moment because we were so focused on finding as much information as we could and connecting with the right people. Um, But I remember I was driving down Chautauqua two weeks later and got the call from the same geneticist. And he said, hi, Kristen. And I could just tell from the tone of his voice that she had the same diagnosis. And then he said, you you know, your your younger daughter, Gwyneth, shares the same diagnosis as, as Charlotte. And, you know, immediately crying, immediately angry. I mean, this whole 25% chance, this one in four didn't seem accurate, the statistic or fair. There were so many things that seemed so horribly unfair. I mean, meeting my husband, it's like a one in a million chance that you would meet someone that shares the same mutation that you do. So then you get kind of angry, like, you know, you could potentially prevented this if, if you would have known. But, you know, I only would have known if someone in my family or his family would have been, had Batten disease, had been diagnosed. Maybe it was 20 years ago or 30 years ago, but we didn't have any of that. So then we had to dig in even deeper to find out, well, where did it come from? And my mom passed away when I was 13. So we had my dad tested and he wasn't a carrier. So we know it came from my mom and then it came from Gordon's mom. So pretty crazy. How does something like this, these back-to-back diagnosis of both your daughters, how does it immediately change your relationship, change your relationship with your husband, change the relationship with the girls? What is that, that shift that happens? Well, I think it could go one of two ways. You either band together and just fight this fight together and support each other, or you grow apart and you both kind of carry on in your own experiences in whatever way that is. And it's isolating and it can be, you know, debilitating to your marriage. Um, I feel like Gordon and I grew closer through this experience than we were prior to the diagnosis. Um, And as far as the relationship with the girls, it was, you know, then you're wanting to spend more time and do more things and plan more for the future. But I don't think Gordon and I ever allowed ourselves to think that this was going to be a terminal thing for our girls. I think we we decided to, to carry the mindset that we were going to fight this and we were going to overcome it in whatever way that was. We didn't know at the time, um, but that this was not going to be our journey. Did you share anything with Charlotte? I mean, I'm assuming she's old enough to sort of have a conversation at this point. I think that we just wanted to top line it with that her body, you know, is reacting differently to different things. And that, you know, she used to kind of have these shakes and I would call them the shaky sallies. Like, you're having the shaky sallies today. (laughs) You know, and just trying to kind of validate what was happening to her. Just saying that, you know, your body's different and you're having different experiences. And, um, you know, mommy and daddy are working on it. How far had Charlotte progressed at this time? Her symptoms were kind of slow and steady the first part of the year, and then they they got fairly aggressive the second second half of the year. What changes are you noticing in the second half of the year? Um, her ability to walk. She was having what looked like drop seizures where she'd just be walking and would just kind of fall to the ground. I mean, we never really allowed her to walk without someone having their hand on her. Um, She had a gait belt that we would use um, to hold on to her, still to give her, we wanted to give her as much independence as possible. um, But we also wanted to make sure that she was safe. So we, we bought a helmet for the house. We put up those rubber 
um, moldings around every sharp corner that was in our house. We had wainscoting, you know, at chair level across our house. I think we had wainscoting over like 70% of the house. All of her furniture had, you know, protection on it. We just really, you know, wanted to give her the independence, but wanted to make sure that she was safe. And you said, um, I read in an interview that you said it changed your definition of suffering. Explain this. You know, I lost my mom when I was 13. And that was horrible. Um, She was sick for three months. She died of leukemia. I never in my wildest imagination had thought that she was going to lose her life. She went immediately into the hospital. The doctors were treating her and I thought she was going to get better. So I had already kind of experienced a lot of tragedy at a very young age, which I think prepared me for this. But I don't think you can ever prepare yourself for I'm going to cry. Your children suffering. It's I mean, you think about, you know, if a friend is mean to her before that, you're dealing with like, you know, a bratty friend that was not inclusive to her and how that was really painful for your child and in turn, you know, painful for you. Or, you know, she falls down and she skins her knee, which is awful. Um, But then you you take on something like this and it's just a totally different beast. So it's awful. It's awful. Um, you, you definitely learn to appreciate the small things in, in life and take each day as a blessing with gratitude. And, you know, every day Gordon and I would wake up and wonder what condition Charlotte would be in. Is she going to get out of bed and is she going to walk or is she going to get out of bed and fall? And so we really lived each moment as it came. Um, and really kind of celebrated the little things that were happening, you know, each day. I imagine with other pediatric diagnosis, whether it be a form of cancer, immediately, A, there's a lot of information out there, and B, you can follow the journey of somebody else's story, Mm -hmm. which maybe provides hope or certainly opportunities for connection with those families who or in your same shoes or have been there and come out the other end. Where were you with that? And having so little information, did you reach out to any of these families? Did you find Mm -hmm. or make connections with these families? Yeah, I think Gordon and I divided and conquered. I mean, he kind of took on more of the uncovering, the scientists, the researchers. I mean, he would take phone calls to New Zealand at midnight, you know, one in the morning just to just to connect with all of these people. And I took on connecting with the families, the families that had children with Batten disease, not just CLN6, but other CLNs, because they all are very similar. Um, I connected with a family in Austin, Texas, who had a daughter with CLN3. I remember the mom saying to me, you have to fight your own mutation. Don't go and try to fight Batten disease as a whole because there's 14 different types of Batten disease. You need to fight Batten disease CLN6 for your girls. And then I spoke to a family in Chicago who, ironically, we had mutual friends. That's where I grew up. We had mutual friends. And they had two children, a boy and a girl, that were diagnosed with CLN2. Again, another form, but very similar. But he was a huge advocate for his kids and had started a foundation. And I think I probably spoke to him every day for the first two weeks. The Batten Disease Support Group is based in Columbus, Ohio, and they have a conference every year. And Charlotte was diagnosed in March. The conference was in July. And I actually was warned by some parents, like, I don't know if you want to go 
to this conference. It's it's really emotionally hard because a lot of the children are there. And I said, well, I have to go because I have to meet with all these researchers. I have to see face to face, you know, who these scientists are and and what they could potentially do. And at the time, we had started conversations with them. Um, my stepmom, the girls and I flew out to Chicago and went to the one day of the conference. And it was awful. It was awful. It was awful and great. It was great because I was able to connect face to face with a lot of these families that had really helped guide me. Um, But it was awful because I was seeing late stage progression of Batten disease and and potentially what could happen to my children. And I remember, you know, one of the parents saying, why don't you come and meet um, my son? And I went into this it was in a banquet hall and, and there were a bunch of different rooms. And I went into this room and there were just a bunch of, you know, kind of cots on the floor where all these children were laying so that the parents could attend the conference and have their children be um, looked after. And like three of the children were sleeping. Two of the children were having full-blown constant seizures. Most of them were blind. None of them were mobile. And it was just, it was just a big, harsh, you know, taste of what could be our reality. Um, Because Gordon wouldn't go. Gordon couldn't handle it. He couldn't handle any of the stories, the pictures. I didn't I didn't even join the BDSRA Facebook group because I couldn't hear the constant trials and tribulations of these families because I it just was too emotional for me. It was it was hard. And I haven't been to a meeting since. I wouldn't go back either. Mm -hmm. So Basically, you find the right team of doctors eventually and specialists, which I know was a long and complicated road. And you come up with a three-part plan with the intention of saving your daughter's lives. Walk walk me through that, if you will. I mean, there were three main areas in these brain diseases that you can focus on in a lot of diseases. Um, regenerative medicine, so stem cell therapy, um, small molecule therapy, finding a drug out there that could potentially slow slow down the progression of the disease. And I, I would was calling that my great white hope that could slow down the progression of the disease. And then the last, which was the most promising, was gene therapy. So basically replacing the mutated gene with a, a correct copy of the gene. So that was kind of our three-pronged approach. Um, and I remember, you know, some of the families that had been on the journey far longer than we had, maybe four years saying, don't go after gene therapy, it's going to take five years or more. And we knew that our girls didn't have five years. And so we kind of just were throwing things up against the wall to see what would stick, really. And um, then we were introduced and to Dr. Brian Kaspar at Nationwide Children's Hospital, who had successfully completed a spinal muscular atrophy um, using gene ther- the gene therapy method. And we called him, my husband called him and said, um, here's our diagnosis. Here's what we'd like to do. We will give you as much money as you need to move forward. And um, Dr. Casper said, I have a daughter named Charlotte and I will charge you only what my cost is. And I want to fight this fight with you. So that was great. There's obviously a cost associated with this and the cost is significant. How many millions of dollars did you need to raise? And what was the timeline in which you needed to raise it? I mean, we were told a lot of things, but kind of the the top level was it's going to cost you $10 million. So you need to raise $10 million. Um, and so, you know, in June of 2015, as we're being told this, we started our foundation and really we're off to the races with fundraising. 
we did a huge social media campaign that was supported by a lot of my husband's colleagues in the entertainment industry, and we raised our first million dollars. So that was kind of our first big, you know, we could we could breathe a little bit because we knew we had some money to fund these different research institutions. But, you know, all in all, I think, you know, the gene therapy alone was four and a half million dollars. So Gordon is a accomplished producer in the entertainment industry, and you live here in Los Angeles. There was a great swell of support within the community and in the social media campaign, which made a big impact. And I know there was everybody from Mark Wahlberg to Jennifer Garner sort of reaching out to people and just a swell of support, I imagine, and your friends and family and all the people who love you guys. What is it like to be on the receiving end of that swell? Very humbling. I I think, you know, the first hurdle is really exposing yourself and making yourself and your family vulnerable to share your story. So that was hard. But really, I mean, our community and our family really did step up from one of my best friends from college starting and hosting a tea at her home, which was 200 women. She put it together in probably two weeks in Brentwood. And Everything was donated, everything from audiovisual to the tent to the catering to the, you know, wine and spirits to it was unbelievable. We did not spend one dollar on that event other than people's time, which um, was kind of mind blowing. But in four hours at this tea, we raised two hundred thousand dollars, which was unbelievable. Um, another mom friend of so Charlotte's best friend um, was this girl by the name of Avery and I became very close with her mom Kristen and Kristen hosted um, a music event at the Adam Factory through her connections again another 200 person event Um, we had a silent auction and had the support of a lot of my new mom friends um, who I think were also really impacted by this because they knew Charlotte and their children were friends with Charlotte. And um, I think it really hit home, you know, for them as well. And so lifelong childhood friends in Chicago hosted um, the largest ever sit down dinner in Naperville, Illinois, you know, and this is all within the first six months of, of receiving the diagnosis. So, I mean, it was pretty fast and furious and, and, you know, we were constantly in motion, which I think also helped keep us in our minds busy. Just seeing just the outpouring of constant support from lemonade stands to bake sales to, you know, kids wanting to have a concert um, for us. I think I think a lot of these families use it as an opportunity to empower their children to give back and to be grateful for their health. And that was really cool to see. Yeah, I bet. I love that. So eventually you raise the money to fund the trial and the treatment. And am I correct that you not only raised it for yourself, but there was 13 other families around the world that participated? So we actually launched the first phase with only six six kids. And we didn't even have those six kids yet. We didn't know who those six children were, would be. We knew that, you know, Charlotte and Gwyneth had the diagnosis, but even with the diagnosis, they weren't guaranteed treatment. And Charlotte was progressing fast, fast. And so it was a really scary time leading up to the treatment because there's a protocol in place. And if she isn't walking a certain number of steps and isn't saying 10 words, um, then she might not be enrolled in the trial. So we started with an N of six. And then after those six children were treated, we asked, we went back to the FDA and asked to treat six more. 
And what did the process of the trial entail? People are envisioning participating in this trial. What does that look like for a family? So a lot of families would hear about it. The Once they received a diagnosis, they would usually, I was usually the first person they reached out to because on our website, I have my own personal email just so I could help guide the families, you know, if they did have this unfortunate diagnosis. Um, and then I would connect them with the hospital. So it is a long, arduous process, but I think every family that knows that they could have the opportunity to treat their children welcome it. Um, it's more difficult and challenging for other families that are traveling from far away, for families that um, don't have the means and the finances to travel. And so that's where our foundation kind of stepped in and said, you know, not only are we going to pay for the the trial, for the treatment for your child, but here's a $5,000 um, T&E, you know, expense for while you're here to help you pay for lodging or to help you pay for a, a car, a rental car, um, to help you with your food, et cetera. Um, and so, and then American Airlines stepped in with with the flight miles, providing to families to fly to and from for the two-year period of time, which was, you know, amazing. So do you start to see any changes as a result in, in the girls? we had pretty realistic expectations because we were we were told like this isn't a reversal of symptoms. I think in, in my my mind for sure, and I think Gordon shared the same sentiment was that, you know, we're going to go into that 12 month time point or that 24 month time point and Charlotte's going to walk in on her own. Like that's that was kind of the mindset and the expectation that we had. And over time, we had to kind of change that expectation because it wasn't happening as as fast and furious as we had hoped. And what, what was the result for Gwyneth? Um, well, today she's five and a half and she's still in a typical classroom. She still speaks. Um, she rides her scooter. She swims and still enjoys the same things that a typical five and a half year old would. And she has a great love for life. And she is um, much further along at her age than Charlotte was at five and a half. I can't rest on that anyway. I have to, I have to, you know, in my mind, just keep working on things. Um, you know, science is moving fast, but I don't think that we have fully uncovered and discovered the cure. Has there been one part of Charlotte's loss that has been the hardest for you to watch? Yes. Um, and I'm going to try not to cry again. Just her joy, her spirit. We just want her to be happy. So she doesn't walk fine, we'll carry her. Um, she doesn't speak, we'll help her communicate in other ways. Um, just had such a bright, sweet spirit about her. And I think this disease has taken that away from her. And while she still has joy, and, and that really kind of dictates what kind of day I have, it's fewer and far far between. I mean, you don't see her smiling like she used to all the time. And I mean, she doesn't complain. She is the best patient ever. And that's kind of how she's carried herself through this whole journey. And it just I think it speaks to her soul. I mean, she's just she's a light. She does have a way about her of connecting with people without kind of the spoken word. I love that. Yeah, that's beautiful. We are going to talk about your superpowers now. Mm. Um, so to date, you've held 110 events, mm -hmm. raised 6.4 million. My guess is all these numbers are are more. This is this is on the foundation website. So um, millions and millions of dollars, over 100 
events. Mm -hmm. And then you decide on top of all of this to start a school. Mm -hmm. Explain why that was important to you and what needs the school meets for the families. I just found that I was driving around a lot from schools to therapies. I was sitting in these um, lobbies of these therapy centers meeting parents like me who were sharing the same frustration. Where am I going to send my child? There isn't a place for my child. Um, And so, you know, it just kind of put a bug in my brain about the need, but I didn't pursue it immediately um, because I was busy taking care of my girls and just kind of getting back to our life. And then I met a mom that was just as motivated as I was, um, who shared the same sentiment, like there is no place for my daughter. Her daughter had a rare disease. Her daughter was nonverbal. And I said, well, why don't we just try to start something? So we found two schools up in Northern California that sounded a lot like what we wanted to do. And we toured them. And they kind of said, look, we'll give you the template. We'll give you all of our documents, you know, our program information, whatever you need to start something um, in Southern California. And um, that was kind of the tipping point to us saying, let's just do it. I've already started one nonprofit. What's the big deal? We'll start another. There are a lot of displaced families out there that are just kind of making it work with, you know, the, the, the schools that the IEP team recommended, but have never really felt fully satisfied in what it was providing for their child. I mean, it's hard on us, but it's really harder on the children because all they're doing is getting carted around all of these different people. So why not create an environment where all of that can be included in one one place? And so that's that's what we did. And how many families are there today? So we have six children. Our team is exceptional. And everyone is motivated by the same thing. And that is like the health and joy and wellness of these children. So it's been really cool. It's amazing. Kudos to you, my friend. Thank you. I know you're at the school five days a week. Mm -hmm. Um, I imagine shuttling Gwen back and forth Mm -hmm. (laughs) to school (laughs) appointments, how you even found the time to sit down with me today. Where do you find your strength? Um, I think through the eyes of my kids, I just look at them every day and know that that is my fight. And that is that is what drives me. And of course, I'm sure losing my mom at a a young age and having a a great role model as a father and an amazing brother and extended family support, you know, helped kind of guide me and mold me into who I am today. But I, I really believe that, you know, these two little girls are, you know, what drive me every day. Do you, do the dark moments creep in? Of course. Yeah, of course. I I don't do dark and depressed well, even when my mom was sick and and passed. I I just, I can't handle that feeling. And so while I don't push it down, I just try to focus on the good moments um, and create as much normalcy in our life as we can. I mean, obviously, Gordon and I really had to alter our sense of reality as a a family and as parents. I thought I was going to be a soccer mom. And, you know, I love sports and was an athlete growing up and, you know, be on the weekends going to all of these games and, you know, activities for my children. And and that's not our reality. That's not our life. You know, we still go out to dinner, even though that can be tough. I mean, with Charlotte and her stroller and finding, you know, a table that her stroller isn't too intrusive with, you know, it's challenging, but we, we want 
to create as much normalcy as possible. You know, we've just had to make adaptations to to our life. And, um, you know, our hope is we'll continue to be able to share in these moments with our girls, you know, for as long as we're alive as parents, but we just don't know if that's our reality. And again, I just try not to think about that. But yeah, I mean, I go to bed sad and, you know, frustrated and angry. It seems very unfair. But that's hard to carry every day, the anger and the frustration, because um, it's not going to channel positive things. And it's not, you know, you're not going to be bringing your best self to your children. And so I just we have dance parties every night. We listen to music all the time. And we just find ways to adapt. I have to tell you, um, and I don't remember which one of our friends in common shared this with me, but it was a barbecue at some point. And um, she said, Kristen was there. And I, I noticed that all the other moms are sort of standing out of the pool, not wanting to be in their bathing suits at the, and Kristen's right there in the pool with the girls, you know, smiling. And, and she said, it made me want to be a better mom. So I think people observe that joy and presence, um, and it impacts them. Oh, thanks for sharing that. What do you know about yourself that you didn't know before this happened? probably that I'm stronger than I thought I was. But it's that sounds funny because it's hard for me when I hear people say, you know, you're strong, you're so strong so you can handle this. I'm like, I don't want to be strong anymore. I don't want to be that person. I just want to live a normal life and have healthy kids. But I, I definitely have taken on emotionally far more than I ever thought I would in my life. And I feel like I'm trying to handle it with grace um, and trying to handle it to the best of my ability. I haven't crumbled yet. So, um, you know, I think that has surprised me. Where do you find joy and laughter? With my kids every day. What is your greatest wish for your girls? To be healthy and happy. All right. So we do something at the end Mm -hmm. called rapid fire. Okay. Are you ready, Kristen? I didn't get a lot of sleep last night, but I'll try. Uh, It's easy breezy. Okay. What is your favorite ice cream? Mint chocolate chip. What is your favorite sound? Sound? That's an interesting question. It can be laughter. It can be music. It can be waves. Probably waves. Showers or baths? Baths, for sure. Magazines or blogs? Magazines. Favorite curse word? F-U-C-K. Favorite song for an impromptu dance party? That troll soundtrack that my girls and I listen to is full dance ready. Favorite childhood cereal? Raisin Bran. Finally, favorite quote? I feel like they've changed a lot. I mean, it sounds cliche, but just living each day to the fullest. Is that even a real quote? Yeah, I think it's a quote. Okay. Carpe diem. (laughs) Carpe diem. Yes, carpe diem. Thank you. All right. Um, Carpe diem to you, Kristen. Thank you for being here. And I think I know the answer to this question, but can you tell me what charity we are supporting today? The Charlotte and Gwyneth Gray Foundation to Cure Batten Disease and uh, the Gray Academy. Which is the school you started. The school, yes. All right. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. 
Today's interview supports the Charlotte and Gwyneth Gray Foundation. As you now know, the foundation was founded by two parents, Kristen and Gordon, who are committed to finding a cure for Batten disease to save the lives of their two daughters. Today, the foundation recognizes firsthand the day-to-day challenges of living with a rare disease. In addition to funding research, the foundation provides financial support to families for education, patient therapies, and equipment, all critical to their well-being and rehabilitation. To learn more about their remarkable work, you can find them at www.curebatten.org. That's www.curebatten.org. Thank you for making the time to listen. We hope you learned something new, and today you will hold the ones you love a little closer. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.